This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 43, and today we are looking at philanthropy at the movies. Um, So the Oscars are coming up uh, this weekend. Um, So ahead of that, I thought I might for once uh, kind of tie what I'm talking about on the podcast to something in the external world. So I'm taking the opportunity to return to a theme I've kind of written a bit about uh, before and also we've touched on um, quite a long time ago in an earlier episode of the podcast. Um, Looking at the question of how philanthropy has been represented uh, on the silver screen and basically why there aren't any great films about philanthropy um, at the moment uh, and, you know, kind of what we might do about that in the future. Um, So, uh, as I say, we kind of, we did touch on this in episode 15 about Hollywood philanthropy, where we looked sort of more broadly at philanthropy by people in the movie industry and uh, some of the kind of interesting examples of people using filmmaking as a tool to advance uh, social and environmental missions. But we did also kind of touch there on, on the question of, Uh, how philanthropy had been looked at uh, or kind of represented on film, but I want to explore it in a lot more detail today. Um, I should say up front there's going to be quite a few spoilers for various films uh, throughout the course of the podcast today, so if that's a trigger warning for you, you might want to switch off now. Uh, I should also flag up that although I am going to be dealing genuinely with some kind of interesting deep and uh, theoretical issues about philanthropy this may well end up being a slightly more frivolous episode of the podcast uh, than than it sometimes is but hopefully that will uh, work for for all of you so in the first section what i want to do is just have a bit of a think about you know where we can identify um fictional philanthropists on film uh, and just kind of a bit about you know the extent to which they are genuinely interesting portrayals or tell us anything about philanthropy um and to be honest the my starting point for this is i really struggle i've you know i've thought about this a couple of times over the last few years and i, I wrote a blog a few years ago basically bemoaning the fact that there were no great films about philanthropy despite the fact i know perfectly well from my own work there's loads of you know real life stories about philanthropy that are fascinating there's loads of really interesting issues that arise through philanthropy but so far nobody has managed to use film as medium to capture those um so you end up looking for quite stupid examples to be honest um so the first one that i thought of which you know i'll have to give a hat tip to my uh erstwhile uh co-host um adam pickering on this one um is brewster's millions so um brewster's millions is a film from i think about 1985 with um richard pryor and john candy where he unexpectedly inherits um, $30 million or something like that from a, a rich uncle that he never knew he had. But there's all kinds of crazy stipulations. He has to 
I think, spend all of the money within 30 days and he's not allowed to have any kind of uh, tangible evidence of benefit at the end of it. Um, so to some extent, it's a film about the uh, the difficulties of giving money away effectively. Um, now, this is a bit of a reach in terms of seeing it as a film about philanthropy, I mean, partly because it's a mid-80s comedy that's really quite silly. But also uh, one of the stipulations is that he's only allowed to give away um, 5%, I think, of the total amount. So actually the, the sort of focus on charity is pretty limited. So maybe we should skip on a bit. The the second one I thought of was um, Forrest Gump. Um, so obviously Forrest Gump's a pretty wide-ranging film about a sort of simple everyman who ends up being in a lot of the uh, major events of modern US history. Um but over the course of the the film, uh, Gump becomes a millionaire. Um, partly, uh, I think after the uh, Bubba Gump shrimp incident that anybody who's seen the film will remember, and then he there's jokes about him investing in early Apple stock and that kind of thing. Uh, and he does subsequently give away quite a lot of money. Um, but you know, it, I don't think it tells you anything very interesting about philanthropy. I'm not sure Forrest Gump is the uh, poster child for strategic philanthropy that anybody would choose. Uh, and generally the fact that he kind of uh, floats through life being um, a uh, kind of observer rather than a shaper of the events that that he is in um, is, is very much kind of motif of the film. Um, and so, you know, the, the idea of him as kind of strategic and proactive as opposed to passive um, doesn't really work. You know, the whole motif of the film is about a feather being blown on the wind, which I'm pretty sure is not the way most philanthropists would like to think of themselves. Um, so the other one that I thought of where I was able to uh, kind of scratch a bit more and, and come up with slightly more of a thesis was um, Annie. Um, so there's been a couple of film adaptations of this. It's the the musical Little Orphan Annie. Um, and in that, the, the character of Daddy Warbucks um, is, a, is a sort of post-war industrialist who's obviously made a lot of uh, money and is very rich. Um, and it starts off basically that he has a bit of a PR problem, I think, because he's very rich but very unpopular. So he wants to do philanthropy essentially as a kind of PR or reputation management um, activity. So he, he um, kind of goes and gets some of these orphans, uh, one orphan, maybe a little orphan Annie, from, uh, from an orphanage and kind of treats her to an evening at the theatre or something. Um, and it's all quite seminal, uh, cynical. Um, but then he, he kind of, she's so lovable and winsome and, and sings such catchy songs that he develops an emotional connection with her. Um, and, you know, this plays out in various ways that I won't go into, but also he obviously starts to understand some of the, the issues to do with uh, poverty that are going on uh, more widely in the country around him. And I guess the the interesting bit in terms of how it closes the the circle that does tell you something i guess or you could try and make it tell you something about philanthropy is that towards the end of the film um as a result of having his heart opened by his connection with uh with annie um he takes her to meet president roosevelt um and roosevelt convinces him uh daddy warbucks to lead a new government social welfare program trying to deal with the sort of widespread poverty in the u.s at the time which you know the the film makes clear is not something that Warbucks would have ever thought of doing. So actually his uh, initial cynical involvement in philanthropy, followed by his emotional connection, which led to understanding, eventually led to uh, enlightenment around the idea of the need for state intervention. 
So that's that's my thesis about little orphan Annie and philanthropy. Um, but I think you know what what it shows is that you have to reach quite hard to find examples of philanthropy uh, on the big screen and kind of uh, take any lessons from them. Um, it's possible that you know we might be able to find more enlightenment from television because I mean there's been a big shift obviously in in the last few years about this being the golden age of television and actually television is where quite a lot of the um, sort of really marquee stuff is done nowadays and actually perhaps the the longer form of the um, you know multi-part series um, might be a better uh, arena in which to kind of explore some of these more complex issues um, again that hasn't really been done yet I mean I've, I think there's been some interesting stuff so the the Showtime uh, program Billions that's that I think is still going or I've kind of given up on it but the first couple of seasons um, it's a program um, uh, about uh, so it's Paul Giamatti uh, and um, Damien Lewis uh, and they Damien Lewis plays a sort of hedge fund billionaire and Paul Giamatti is um, a district attorney and whatever and it's about the, this kind of personal enmity they have and the 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 kind of uh, rivalry they have where the the DA is trying to kind of take down uh, this this hedge fund magnate but but in the course of this one of the things that he does is get quite involved in philanthropy and it, it actually I think tells you something about maybe the kind of reality of how very high net worth philanthropy is done because there's there's particularly one scene where um Damien Lewis's character has uh, another billionaire from sort of older money that he um really doesn't like and I think uh, mucks him about somewhere in business and so in order to get his own back he sort of uses philanthropy undercuts the other person through philanthropy by um, taking over their foundation or getting a seat on the board um, and then and basically kind of pulling rank in terms of grant making getting their name pulled off a building and it's it's all very cynical but uh, you know so it's not, not perhaps the most positive representation of philanthropy but I think maybe it tells you something interesting um, but I guess you know actually looking back at the movies rather than specific examples of it or kind of particular films that that explore this in any depth I guess you know the the point to make is that philanthropy is at best I think a trope in in wider stories um, and I think you know there's at least two ways in which that plays out so I think you definitely see the philanthropist as kind of deus ex machina so if in a story you reach a point where you just need somebody essentially with kind of unlimited resources to come in and solve a problem then saying that they are an eccentric philanthropist usually works quite well um you see that in contact for instance where um the character played by john hurt sr haddon um plays a big part because he kind of um the the space program they're doing essentially goes wrong and there's an there's a accident on launch but then it turns out that he was separately kind of funding an entirely parallel version of the same thing which you know seems improbable but luckily it makes the film uh, able to keep on going um and then the other way i think is that's probably more common really is the the idea of the philanthropist as a kind of cinematic shorthand for somebody having dubious motives um, I mean, th- this is you know an idea that um, uh, various times throughout history, when philanthropy has come in for particular criticism, you've seen elsewhere. So um, G.K. Chesterton famously remarked that it had reached the point, I think, in the early twentieth century, where philanthropy had, be- uh, philanthropy had become the recognisable mark of a wicked man, um, and that's sort of true in a lot of films. You know, if there's some 
rich, smooth character who comes in and is presented as a wealthy philanthropist, that's usually a sort of red flag that they've got ulterior motives or that there's something else going on. You know, in the same way that if in a film uh, a woman is sick, it's a cinematic shorthand for the fact that she's pregnant. So so I think that's become a bit of a lazy shorthand. Um, but that teases up for the next section uh, in which I'm going to explore the one area in which I think you actually can find some kind of interesting exploration of issues to do with philanthropy and that is in comic book adaptations so stay tuned for that okay so we are back Uh, and in this section as i said before the break what i want to do is basically put forward uh, an argument that i think that comic books and their film adaptations um either by accident or by design, are sort of the closest thing you can find uh, at the moment to explorations of some actually interesting issues to do with philanthropy. Um, and I'm going to give some some examples to uh, kind of back up my case. And if it looks like I'm reaching too much, then uh, you'll have to forgive me. But um, to be honest, I'm entirely un- unapologetic about this. The first point to make is that, you know, in comic books, again, um, a lot of characters tend to be extremely wealthy. Um, as I was saying before the break, I mean, partly it's just kind of, it's easy in the form of a deus ex machina if you need to explain how somebody has essentially infinite resources uh, at their disposal to to go out and build machines and, and also have the, the free time to go and fight crime. Um, it, you know, it's quite easy just to say that they're a billionaire and uh, what do they do in that other time they're a philanthropist. Um, equally, it is used as the sort of uh, signifier of somebody being evil. So a lot, plenty of uh, comic book supervillains are um, uh, kind of presented as wealthy philanthropists who then have a kind of evil alter ego. Um, but it's, I suppose one of the interesting questions is what this says about the perception of philanthropy in both cases. I mean, obviously, in the latter case, it's, again, that sort of lazy signifier of somebody having uh, ulterior motives, which which relies on there being cynicism about philanthropy. But even in the more positive version, I mean, think about, you know, Batman, for instance, um, or Bruce Wayne in the, in the DC universe. So Bruce Wayne is obviously... A, presented as a kind of multi-millionaire playboy and particularly in the recent uh, series of films the Christopher Nolan ones um, with uh, Christian Bale the the character there uh, the the portrayal of his philanthropy is essentially that's the tool he uses to convince people that he's a kind of rich waste of space um, whereas actually the tool that he uses to achieve uh, good in the world is dressing up as a bat and going out and beating people up. Um, and again, that seems to portray uh, a slightly sort of cynical view of the uh, the relative uh, merits of, of philanthropy and vigilante violence. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's kind of in- interesting that that's the, the starting point, but again, maybe it sort of betrays a, an, an underlying cynicism um, about philanthropy. Um, so 
that's that's probably kind of you know the the least helpful way in which you can take lessons from it but i think we can actually start to tease out some slightly more interesting lessons from uh from the comic books so one that i think is interesting um that you see in various ways is the question of whether the way in which you've made money um undermines your ability to do good through it so here let's take iron man uh tony stark um, or you could also take Hank Pym, who's a millionaire uh, inventor um, in Ant-Man as well. Um, but in both cases, they've made billions and billions of dollars through arms manufacture. Um, and then, you know, go on to, I mean, Stark is himself sort of philanthropist uh, in the usual sense, but then also is Iron Man, obviously, and one would assume he thinks he's doing good in that way. Um but I guess, you know, in, in the current climate of criticism at the moment, in light of uh, books like, you know, uh, Anand Giridharadis' Winners Take All and those sorts of things, people are asking questions about whether, you know, the way in which you make money potentially does more harm in the world than any good that you could do through your philanthropy. And, you know, maybe we could see um, the question of, uh tony stark sort of battling with the harm that he's done through stark industries uh by creating armaments in the world and his desire to make up for that um through uh, dressing up as iron man and flying around uh, as a kind of interesting allegory for that maybe we maybe not but you know let, let's stick with it for now um then an- another example um, that I think um, I was thinking about X-Men. So in that, the character of Professor X or Charles Xavier um, obviously comes from a sort of wealthy background and in the end uses his money to set up um, Xavier's school for children, which is essentially a kind of training school for for mutants. Um, but to me, the interesting question about that is being a mutant himself um, and obviously uh, kind of having uh, concern for the issues about how they're treated by wider society, it raises a question about whether that is truly philanthropy or whether the, the level of enlightened self-interest in it means that he himself is getting too much benefit for it to be genuinely altruistic. So is the money that um, he that Charles Xavier is putting into the school philanthropy, um, or you know, does it need to be seen as something more like mission connected investment? Don't know. Again, you, you might feel that I'm really trying to, to get lessons from these that aren't there, but uh, if you do, it's uh, just stick with me for a bit. Um, uh, another one that I thought um, the the Civil War storyline um, in the Avengers. Um, this is. You know, the Avengers is the one where it brings together kind of Iron Man, uh, Captain America, and and lots of uh, other characters from the Marvel universe. Uh, but there's a storyline in that where it comes to a head that um, basically an act is passed requiring all people with superpowers to to register, and it comes down to a difference of opinion within the Avengers about whether they are more of a force for good and should be allowed to uh, continue to um, to act kind of uncontrolled by the government or whether they need to sign up and work under the auspices of the state. And this is actually a genuinely uh, interesting question at the heart of philanthropy about the degree, the degree to which you allow philanthropic freedom um, because you believe that actually autonomy for philanthropy and not constraining it is important in order to allow it to play its full role in society or the degree to which you think that you should prioritize democratic accountability and equality and thereby um, allow the state to, to at least play a role in regulating or to some extent controlling uh, philanthropy 
So you go. I've found a genuinely interesting bit of political philosophy there in the uh, Civil War uh, storyline from from the Avengers. Um, and then another one. Um, so the most one of the most recent and most successful Marvel films uh, that's up for the Oscars, actually bringing it back to to that, um, is Black Panther. Uh, and that's you know I thought it was a really really interesting and uh, really good film. Um, and this actually raises uh, a very interesting question I think about the responsibility that comes with philanthropy and how you discharge that, and particularly around questions of identity. So um, without going into it in too much detail, there's uh, so Black Panther um, is the kind of the inheritor of the title of the King of Wakanda, which is this Afrofuturistic uh, state um, that has sort of unlimited resources essentially but he gets challenged by his um i think it was his cousin uh called eric killmonger brilliantly played by michael b jordan um but but over the course of the film it becomes apparent that killmonger's is not really a a, a sort of bad guy in the traditional sense he just is criticizing black panther and the people of wakanda for for sort of uh, looking after themselves on a geographic basis and not using the resources they have to help people of uh you know african heritage uh across the world and so actually there's a really interesting question there about the the degree to which you know your responsibility is based on geographic location or whether it's more about communities of identity and you know how that relates to kind of diaspora communities and the role that they play in uh in the place that they are now and the place they come from um so you know that's genuinely i think a a really interesting question and you know as i say it kind of it it gets to a point in the film where it's not really clear who's in the right and and who's in the wrong and then the final one that i want to uh chuck in uh it's two two examples actually one is from the marvel universe so in the latest marvel film which is uh, avengers infinity war the plot of that is that the the bad guy thanos um essentially wants to destroy half of the the beings that have ever existed in the universe but his rationale for doing so is that he thinks that's necessary in order to maintain uh the kind of quality of life of uh the the remainder of them so it's it's a sort of malthusian thing this is similar as well i think to um the storyline about ozymandias in the watchmen film or the book by alan moore where again um in different ways in the book and in the film he decides that what is necessary in order to bring the human race together around a kind of shared goals is to uh, manufacture a tragedy that results in a huge loss of life and this will kind of shock people into working together and it strikes me there's a sort of effective altruism element to this which you know is that if you are taking a purely utilitarian approach to maximizing the the overall number of lives saved or the kind of overall quality of life in according to some sort of measure like quality adjusted life years actually that takes you down the road where you can start to to argue for those sorts of things so actually would would the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and if you are calculating this particularly on the basis of future lives as plenty of effective altruists would argue that you should actually if you could if you justifiably believe that allowing a small number of people to die now would save an enormous number of lives later then that becomes a great act of philanthropy so there you go thanos and ozymandias are effective altruists um so uh you know hopefully people have uh thought that that wasn't an absolute waste of 10 minutes of your life um but you know i i thought it was fun to to look into it and try and kind of relate it to more serious issues to do with uh kind of 
current issues affecting philanthropy and the kind of policy environment around them and some of the sort of theoretical questions that they throw up. Um, but again, I suppose the sort of fundamental point that you can take away from it is if if in order to get uh, any sort of interesting insight about philanthropy from the films, uh, I have to go away and watch lots of films in the Marvel Universe and then painstakingly relate that to issues that I know about through my work, that probably tells you something about uh, there being a slight gap in the market. Okay, um, and then in the final section, uh, I just want to have a bit of a think about how that gap in the market might be filled in the future, particularly thinking about where there are interesting stories either about individual philanthropists or kind of issues in philanthropy that could be addressed through film uh, and maybe some suggestions about who could play some of those parts so stay tuned for that okay so we're back for the final section and as i say in this one i just want to uh, give a few uh, kind of ill-formed and sprawling thoughts about um, stories that could be portrayed on on screen um, that I think would work and some of the kind of issues that, that also might make for, for good films. Um, so the first thing um, to say is, you know, what about some of the really kind of big names uh, from the history of philanthropy? So Andrew Carnegie, for instance, um, very famous as a kind of billionaire philanthropist who wrote a series of essays called his gospel of wealth all about the kind of his views on the responsibility that came with wealth and the role of philanthropy in society funded all sorts of things um, very notably kind of libraries in america and around the world and you know i think there's an enormous amount of interesting stuff both good and bad about carnegie's life that would make for a, for a great film um, and actually, you know, some people agree with me. So the the actor Brian Cox, not not the um, physicist, uh, but but the actor, has uh, I think for quite a number of years now had an option on David Nassau's biography of Carnegie, and has actually made a documentary about the life of Carnegie. Uh, and there is um, sort of some ongoing news that he has in the pipeline plans to make a TV series about it, starring himself. Um, which I think would absolutely be great. Um, I always used to think um, that we'd missed a trick in not getting this film made um, when Sean Connery was still kind of working in the film business. Because, um, you know, curmudgeonly Scott with a sort of silver hair and, uh, and beard uh, who'd moved to America and was, was a millionaire and had some slightly uh, erratic views. Well, you know, you could see the natural fit there. Um, and if you'll just indulge me for a minute like just just picture the scene for a moment here we go he who dies rich dies thus disgraced so that's my extremely poor sean connery impression but i think it gives you a sense of the potential power uh, of an andrew carnegie film biopic um so another um uh, big figure that i think would be really interesting to look at is jd rockefeller i mean again you know all kinds of issues that you could deal with here um my suggestion for casting here would be james cromwell uh if you don't know who james cromwell is go away and google him and i think uh, also google pictures of uh, jd rockefeller at the same time and i think you'll agree it'd be a great piece of casting and what i've often thought is possibly a film about the the life of jd rockefeller would be interesting what would be more interesting to me is a film or maybe even a sort of long-form TV series um, about the, the Walsh Commission. Um, so this was, I mean, it's properly known as the Commission on Industrial Late Relations, but this was a big uh, government commission um, in the, I think, the 1920s in the US, 
looking at kind of industrial practices in the US, but um, it took a very critical view of a lot of the big industrialists of the time, including people like Rockefeller and Carnegie. Um, but actually, one of the sort of subplots of that was it took them to task for their philanthropy, you know, both in terms of the philanthropy itself and the kind of impact that it potentially had on on democracy but also in terms of how that related to industrial practices because i think it's safe to say both rockefeller and very much carnegie uh were not very enlightened in terms of their business practices i mean carnegie employed violent strike breakers and, and this sort of thing and wrote quite openly that he thought it was better to pay his workers very little um, and treat them poorly and then kind of meet their needs through philanthropy because he knew better than than they did what was good for them. So he was extremely paternalistic. Um, but, you know, a film about the Walsh Commission, I think, would be great. I mean, what I'd really like to see personally is a, a long uh, sort of 10-part TV series, uh, ideally written by David Simon, who wrote The Wire, um, or more recently uh, did The Deuce, um, so, you know, in the unlikely event, David Simon's listening, you know, uh, drop me a line because I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but I think, you know, there are also other sort of more positive stories about philanthropy that you could make some really interesting films out of. So, um, you know, it's a fascinating the story of Julius Rosenwald, for instance. So Rosenwald was uh, a 20th century philanthropist in the US. Um, so he was the CEO of Sears and Roebuck in Chicago, a sort of Jewish, prominent Jewish businessman. And he did you know, various things kind of in Chicago, um, building museums and that kind of thing. But really what kind of established his philanthropic legacy was that he ended up giving large amounts of money to fund uh, projects to build schools in the, the Deep South during the Jim Crow era of uh, segregation. Um, and also uh, had an interesting um, approach with his Rosenwald Fund where they gave small amounts of money to um, kind of young black artists and scientists and, uh, and other creatives, including people like sort of Maya Angelou and W.E. Du Bois and these people, that, that it actually played a very prominent part in ensuring that they were able at certain points in their life to go on and kind of continue uh, to do the work they were doing. And a lot of those people ended up being quite prominent figures um, in the civil rights movement. So, you know, there's a very positive story to be told there. And there's actually a documentary about the life of, of Julius Rosenwald by Aviva Kempfner, which if you can uh, track down a copy is really worth watching because it's really interesting. Um, but there are, you know, I think the, the reason that these stories are really interesting is there is also a flip side. You know, some people criticise uh, Rosenwald for... Um, uh, kind of whilst yes there was bravery in his addressing some of these issues at a point where the law was in favor of segregation in the deep south and he kind of uh you know subverted that to some extent um by going and, and supporting building schools it raised that question of whether his his efforts and resources would have been better spent actively trying to sort of dismantle the system that made it possible rather than just pragmatically working within it so um you know i think it could be a really kind of nuanced and interesting uh film um and you know what about some of the great women uh in philanthropy um you know i think there's some figures particularly you know from from the victorian era over here so uh octavia hill who was a social reformer and a kind of housing reformer, but also one of the main driving forces behind the establishment of the national trust um and, you know, her life and her work raise really interesting questions about 
um, kind of how you preserve things for the benefit of society, whether that is about sort of preserving them for a small minority or whether it's about opening up access to all and, and thereby kind of giving um, uh, equality of access. It also, I think, would tell you a lot of interesting things about the role that philanthropy played in um, in the kind of uh, search for women's emancipation and, and the eventual uh, enfranchisement of women, both sort of directly because um, she became involved uh, to some extent in the suffrage movement, but also just philanthropy was very much kind of one of the few things that women could do in the Victorian era to be prominent in, in public life and to sort of learn the, the skills of of civic engagement so it was it was really important and actually the early history of the national trust very much demonstrates that because there were lots of uh, women involved with it um another really interesting story a kind of two-hander this would be to do a film about the life of angela bedette coote so um bedette coote was um a woman who sort of married in she was wealthy enough herself but she married into banking wealth and then her husband died and so she was left with a large fortune uh, and actually was sort of doing reasonably unremarkable, fairly kind of uh, bog-standard Christian philanthropy. But then the the interesting bit comes where she developed um, a relationship with Charles Dickens. Um, and so Dickens, uh, sort of his, he was obviously passionate about the challenges of poverty uh, that he saw in London. And he kind of addressed this through his journalism and also through his books. But also he became a close confidant of Bedette Coutts and actually essentially acted as a philanthropy advisor to her for many years. And there's a really interesting correspondence between the two. Um, so actually, you know, a film about the, the two of those. I'm going to suggest that Olivia Coleman should play Angela Bedette Coutts, possibly Simon Russell Beale uh, as Dickens, although, you know, I'm open uh, to offers on that one. Um yeah, another another really interesting one that I've just been reading quite a lot about recently is uh, William Rathbone, who... Um, he was an MP, um, but he was also part of a, a sort of big, prominent Liverpool business family. Um, but he has a, a really interesting story um, that's the kind of mix of the personal motivation of philanthropy, but also uh, some of the kind of issues about how philanthropy is is done effectively. Um, so he, his wife, his first wife died, um, and this affected him very deeply. But one thing that it left him with was a real sense of the value that she'd had from the private nursing that they'd been able to afford because they were wealthy. Um, and he was sort of struck by the thought that this wasn't available to to most people. Um, and so he, he talked to um, experts, particularly he developed a relationship with Florence Nightingale, um, and they kind of uh, tested the idea that this would be a valuable intervention and found that it you know, very much looked like it would be. So he essentially kind of funded the development of the idea of district nursing um, in the UK. Um, but he also uh, kind of got a real bee in his bonnet about rationality in philanthropy and very much became someone who pressed for the idea of, of taking emotion out of uh, philanthropy and, and making it very much something that was kind of evidence-based and and you know uh, you would only do things if there was sort of demonstrable evidence that they they were worthwhile so you know it would bring that whole kind of head versus heart uh, dimension into it um and if we go a little bit further back even you could get some some really interesting stories so um the story of james oglethorpe uh, would be really interesting so he's a retired um uh i think he was a general possibly in in the army 
Um, but he got very involved in the issue of debtors' prisons uh, in in England. Um, this was basically back in the day. Um, if you got into debt, um, you would be sent to jail. Uh, and these, you know, these weren't jails in the sense that we uh, know them now because they weren't managed by the the state as such. But basically, you were kind of kept there until you could pay off your debt. And obviously, it became a kind of downward spiral because most people, once you're in jail, find it very difficult then to raise the money to pay off debt. And so there were a lot of people languishing in these jails and the conditions were absolutely awful um and interestingly oglethorpe's um kind of idea for solving this problem was instead to fund a colony uh in in america or you know which was part of the colonies at the moment um and to send people from these debtors prisons out there instead to allow them to kind of have some better quality of life so to punish them by transportation but you know better than leaving them to rot in a jail cell and this was at least initially funded largely by subscriptions so kind of raising money philanthropically um and actually that you know the name of the colony was named after the king at the time so it was georgia so this is the story of the founding of the state of georgia it was basically a kind of colony for uh prisoners from from debtors prison and and the government sort of uh, saw how successful this fundraising was and liked the idea because you know they were quite concerned with the, the problem of debtors prisons as well um so they they eventually sort of plowed quite a lot of money in and it became more of a, a state uh run um project um and then the final one that i'll i'll just chuck in historically uh, is one of my favorite um philanthropists he's got such a fascinating story and I really do think somebody should make this as a film or a TV series, um, is John Howard. Um, so not the former Australian Prime Minister, that's that's a totally different film, um, but the uh, prison reformer, so he's a sort of um, 18th century prison reformer. Um, and his, I think, he you'll see why I think he might be quite well played, at least in, in the younger version by Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, so... He, uh, he, the sort of, he, the key point in his philanthropic story was that he was taken uh, prisoner by pirates when he was on a trip to the continent, and and they kept him. He ended up in jail, um, and he was sort of struck by how awful the conditions were in this prison. And he eventually got out. He was released and whatever, and he went back to. Uh, to Britain and became quite a sort of prominent local figure. I think he might have become uh, mayor or something of uh, of the area he was in. Um, but he retained this interest in prisons and developed an interest in the issues around prison reform in the UK. Um, and the interesting, well, one of the interesting things about him was that he took a very evidence-based approach. So the first thing he did was to take it upon himself to go round all of these prisons in the UK, um, sort of uh, t- making copious notes and sort of collecting evidence about the the state of them. Um, and then he sort of tirelessly campaigned for for reform. Um, but he, the really interesting thing about him was that he was a very kind of hands-on philanthropist. He was quite a sort of Indiana Jones figure in lots of ways. He was quite, quite, uh, you know, uh, the stories about what he he did were like those of from from an action film. So, for example, as as well as as de- debtors' prisons and other types of prisons, he got very interested in the idea of uh lazarettos which were these sort of plague prisons so essentially they were places where they throw people with the plague on the continent um because they couldn't really treat them but they wanted to keep them away from the rest of the populace and he wanted to understand the problems with those um the the issue was that he couldn't get agreement to go into any of them so instead what he did was uh sail to istanbul 
and then basically hang around in the hope of getting captured by some pirates uh, who could then, you know, he could use that as a way of, of getting on a plague ship, um, which he managed to do. And he got into some of the, the Lazarettos in Italy and was, you know, a, wrote um, a really interesting book called The Principal Account of, of Lazarettos, um, so sort of first-hand um, uh, perspective on, on that issue. Um, and then one, I guess the the thing that's really I think would make it fascinating, you know, beyond the the facts of his life, are that as a character he was he was really intriguing. So he was he was unusual in amongst philanthropists in being really celebrated during his lifetime. So you know, you, a lot of people while he was alive would celebrate him as a truly kind of remarkable human being and a great philanthropist. Um, but as an as an actual individual, almost nobody liked him because he was so spiky and thorny and difficult. And the things that made him good as a philanthropist, that he was so single-minded and driven, apparently made him absolutely awful as a human being. Um, and he hated the adulation as well. So there are stories about... Um, the, in the magazine of the time, the gentleman, some people sort of suggested that they should get together collections to build a statue to John Howard. And, and Howard himself wrote in and said, on no account should you do this and you should re- return all of the money because I don't want a statue to myself. Um, and there are also, you know, stories of him on an individual level just being rude to the kind of heads of state and royalty of uh, uh, all across Europe because he would get invited to dinner with them through his kind of public prominence, but then had no social skills whatsoever. Um, so I think, you know, it would be an absolutely uh, fascinating story. Um, and then I guess the final thing to say is those are all historical examples. And, you know, I think they make for, for great film or television. But I'm sure, you know, we could think of some modern examples. I mean, just, just one, for instance, would be what about the story of Mark Zuckerberg's um, uh, kind of intervention into the public schooling system in newark which there's been you know books written about quite a lot of analysis done you know we've obviously had one film about mark zuckerberg and the social network uh focusing on how he founded facebook um and the the kind of where that came from and some of the the initial challenges there as as that got bigger but maybe the sort of you know the social network part two could focus on uh on his philanthropy um you know the newark stuff and latterly the kind of chan zuckerberg initiative and, and what's what they're aiming to do through that just an idea um Anyway, I've blathered on quite a lot there about uh, all sorts of stuff, um, but hopefully you've kind of got a sense of, you know, the extent to which I think there is a real gap, actually, in addressing uh, the kind of the, what philanthropy is and some of the, the issues it raises, and also telling some of the, the amazing stories that there are to be found in the history of philanthropy um, and also kind of in modern philanthropy on film. Um, you know, maybe I'll be coming back uh, next year or in years in the future uh, and talking about how many brilliant films have been made about philanthropy. Uh, maybe somebody will ring me up uh, and offer me uh, a huge advance to write the screenplay for the life of John Howard. Who knows? Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I will leave it there. Um, if you've enjoyed this, uh, then uh, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Uh, if you've got any thoughts or comments on what we could talk about on the podcast or people like an interview, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Uh, and other than that, just like, uh, subscribe, share with all your friends, and I'll see you next time. Okay, bye!